Welcome to the Rosedale Bible College Chapel Podcast. We hope you are challenged and inspired by today's message. Enjoy. My goodness, it is good to be together, isn't it? I I have just been so blessed uh, by our time together and hearing the Word preached. Uh, I love it that the past, uh, the sessions that we've had have just been saturated in Scripture. I think it is so good for us. I, I think largely the church has uh, has drifted into territory where uh, we use the Bible as a prop, and, and so many times we preach messages that are sort of, uh, you know, helpful, <laughs> but not grounded in the Scriptures. Tonight, I'd like for you to imagine for a moment that you're part of the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, not America. We're going to step back in time. We're going to go back to the Roman Empire. I want you to imagine just being who you are in the Roman Empire. This empire has huge sums of wealth. The world comes to your doorsteps. All the roads lead to to Rome and all the business people of the world plan their work around your economy. All of the smaller nations that are nearby, they pay tribute to your nation. You're powerful. It's a vibrant economy. On a personal level, when you step out of the, the doorstep of your home, you visit one of these flourishing markets in your village, you go there to buy things for your household. There's often a statue at the entryway of the market in your village, and before you enter the market, you pause and you, you offer a prayer to the statue. Perhaps a, a small offering. You see, the statue is a, a statue of your emperor. And you pledge your allegiance before you enter the market, and then you dip your fingers in the ashes of the burnt offerings, and maybe you mark your forehead or your wrist as a show of solidarity. You're a Roman. You're part of the, 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 the people of Rome, and you're patriotic towards your country and your leader. You have a certain pride as you roam the market with your fellow Romans, one nation in solidarity to your empire and its leaders who lead your people boldly with honor as they did in Rome. Now your people are powerful. They have the latest military technology. Their strategies are renowned. It's how they've conquered so much of the world. Your empire has shaped the world. But imagine now Sometime in the last decade, perhaps, your family and a few other neighbors in your community have heard about Jesus of Galilee, Jerusalem, and your family believed the gospel and gave your life to Jesus, and he became your king. And now, as you're being taught and discipled by Peter and Paul and others, There are aspects of your great and honorable nation and its culture that are beginning to be a bit uncomfortable to you. It's hard to miss the fact that huge sections of the population are slaves or servants. People that Jesus has said in in his family that you're part of now, they're, they're equals. You're all equals. And so, much to the scorn of your neighbors, both rich and poor are sharing mostly equal status in the church fellowship that you're a part of. You begin to notice other things. You notice 
other aspects of your empire that seem less healthy. Less healthy than you previously thought. The obscenity and the sexual perversion that flows unchecked through your culture seems at odds with the way of Jesus. It's not uncommon for your neighbors to participate in both heterosexual and homosexual relationships concurrently. You realize with new eyes that the city squares that, you, that were once a source of pride for you, for all of their ornate artwork and the tremendous culture displayed there, are actually full of art depicting sex acts. Even the pottery in your house is filled with pornographic images. Furthermore, your emperor, Nero, who you used to worship, had his own mother killed and is said to have kicked his second wife to death in a fit of rage and then went on to marry a man. But but it's not just a feeling of separation from the life you used to live. You're also beginning to sense distrust from your fellow countrymen. There are rumors that your faith is cannibalistic since you now eat the body of Christ and you drink his blood at your worship gatherings. There's also the feeling that you're undermining the great empire because you no longer are as patriotic as you used to be. You refuse to offer prayers to the emperor at the market entrance. And you tell people that Jesus is your king. You've been told you're a traitor, someone who hates the empire. People in your group of churches stop signing up to join the Roman legions and do their duty to advance and protect the empire. And this angered some of your neighbors who questioned your loyalty to them and the nation that you shared. And then the crackdown started. This new allegiance of your family was deemed a threat to the stability of the Roman Empire. The emperor, he was inept and he made a number of terrible policy decisions to cover his tail. He began to scapegoat Christians, angry with your lack of allegiance to the empire. And he made examples out of some of the people in your church. There was prison time for some, but but that was the easy stuff. At times he was so angry, he had animal skins sewn around your church members and then turned them loose in an arena to be torn apart by wild animals as he watched them die. And if he was in a particular mood, he even lit Jesus' people on fire and used them as torches to light up his garden. These cruelties were well documented by non-Christian Roman historians. Your church was a perceived threat to Roman culture and it needed to be done away with. Now imagine you're living in this empire. You're the body, the body of Christ, and you're wondering, Lord, how do we live? How do we respond to a culture and to a government that sees us as a threat? And then you get a letter, a letter from your brother, Peter. And when the letter comes, there's excitement because you're hurting. I mean, the weird thing is your church is growing. There are lots of poor people that have come into the family of God and a few wealthy people, but it's painful. 
And some believers there are still wrestling with the sexual perversions that were so normal before their conversion. And many of your fellow believers are slaves and servants with masters who are not kind or thoughtful. And they're wondering if now that they're believers and they're free in Christ, if they can fight back. They have a group of people now to support them and stand with them. And other members of your group need food and they're not sure that it's entirely wrong to to give a small nod to Caesar before they enter the marketplace so they can keep earning a living. And some in the congregation aren't sure if joining up with the Roman legion is totally wrong because it pays well and it helps family financially. But everyone's suffering and is feeling like aliens in this neighborhood to one degree or another. And there's confusion and pain and the church is searching. But the letter comes. And with a sense of excitement and relief, Peter will know what to say. He will have some instruction. He'll tell us how to respond. And so you gather together in someone's home and and you stand As one of the elders opens the letter and reads it out loud, you stand and you listen carefully. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for His possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the One who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, Peter writes, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that He visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear the Lord. And honor the emperor. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it, But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure this, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin 
and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you are like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. When the rest of the letters finished, all the people sat down in quiet. I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. I did not read the whole letter, but I read verses 9 through 25. This is the word of the Lord for us. This letter was written to people who feel estranged from the culture around them, who feel misunderstood, who feel marginalized, who feel criticized, and who are being punished. I'm 40 years old. I have not experienced real persecution. And candidly, that fact creates a question all its own about my faithfulness to Jesus, and it's a question I'm not sure how to answer. In part, because the Bible clearly tells us that it's normative for believers to be viewed as a threat to the culture they live in. That's normal. You find that through the New Testament. And it's true, because the fact of the matter is, we are a threat. The gospel is a threat to the power of darkness. And there is one kingdom that can have our allegiance. And when it's not the earthly one we live in, those citizens around us, not a part of the kingdom of Jesus, get a little uncomfortable. Now I stated that it hasn't cost me much social capital to follow Jesus. But the reality of increased social stigmatization and exclusion for Jesus' followers is becoming more real. Over the last number of decades, there have been massive cultural shifts toward a more militant secularism and away from ethics and values born out of a Judeo-Christian worldview. That fact is undeniable and worth acknowledging. It's in all the literature. It's in all the research. Pastor and author Tim Keller made the comment in a recent talk that modern secular culture is now at the point where people believe that they need to be saved from the idea that they need salvation from God. In other words, in the eyes of many, the gospel is dangerous to a healthy and vibrant society. And so it's, moral ben it's, it's morally beneficial to a society to minimize and marginalize people of faith because people like us are actually harming society's ability to move forward. In response, many Christians have become frightened 
and enraged. They are raising defiant fists as culture warriors, and they are debasing our witness to the world as we do anything and everything necessary to acquire political power to keep mortal enemies at bay. There are Christians right now who think it's their God-given duty to join militias or spend thousands of dollars on elections. There are frank talks that I've observed among Christians about a pending civil war or political rebellion. And I ask, is this how the kingdom of Jesus operates? Is this how Christ's body is called to be in a world that's hostile to it? To answer that question, we do what God's people have always done. God's faithful people, they return to the scriptures. What does 1 Peter 2 tell us to do? And by the way, you see this repeated in 1 Peter chapter 4. Some of you have heard me preach from 1 Peter 4 in your churches. Well, 1 Peter 2 has a lot to tell us, but I want to highlight several key thoughts tonight. Number one, this passage reminds us of our identity, as Darren did so well last night through the scriptures. Listen to the very first verses, verse 9 and verse 10 from chapter 2. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim his praises. The praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's our identity we are an identity of strangers and aliens here. We don't fit in. We never have when we're truly following Jesus, and we never will. We are God's people, and we happen to live in America here. At least most of us, if you're, if you're from America. <laughs> Through the providence of God. Not because we're awesome, or rich, or win the most medals at the Olympics. I like capitalism, I like democracy, I like a judicial system that's good and fair most of the time. But if you need those things to follow Jesus, we don't understand the gospel. We have brothers and sisters in China, in Iran, and Sudan, where those things are often absent, and the church is far healthier than in this country. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is it. He's our call. He's our identity. How else does Peter instruct us? Verse 12. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. What does that mean, conduct yourselves honorably? What does that mean? I invite you to skip across the page to chapter 3, and we'll read verses 14 through 16 that help answer that question. Verse 14 of chapter 3. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you're blessed. There's the second time 
he offers the promise of blessing and favor for suffering. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that's in you. In other words, it's not wrong to respond. Responding honorably invites a defense. Verse 16. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you're accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. So what does it mean to be honorable? We respond to our critics with gentleness and respect. That's the instruction. And it may be helpful to underline that in your Bibles. Brothers and sisters, part of suffering, I believe, part of our suffering right now, I shouldn't even call it suffering. We're not suffering yet. But part of the suffering that I believe is to come is not due to our righteousness, but due to the fact that we have been angry and rude and belligerent, and we have celebrated as heroes those who are angry and rude and bullies. They're on our podcasts. They're on our cable news shows. They're on our YouTube videos. They are some of the politicians we vote for and even some of the religious leaders we look to. And we are set to reap a whirlwind of suffering because we have not given a reasoned and gentle answer for the faith we possess. An answer that's faithful to Jesus. We have allowed unrighteous people who do not bear the fruit of the Spirit to speak for the church. And this disease has entered our churches and our people are not full of love, but full of bravado and fight and fear. And if this doesn't change, our punishment will be severe. What does Peter say next? Verse 17 and verse 13. Let's read that. Peter says, Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governor. Now verse 17 Honor everyone, love the brothers and the sisters, fear God, honor the emperor that kicked his wife to death, married a man, and poisoned his mother. Has Peter lost his mind? Honor that man? This is the man that's lighting fellow believers on fire, Peter. This is the man who's ruining livelihoods and persecuting the church. Peter says, honor him? Why? Notice verse 20. Let's read the second half of verse 20. But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. What do you mean that suffering for Christ's sake brings favor with God? Well, in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, verse 14, Peter puts it another way. Peter says this, The Spirit of the living God is upon you 
when you're ridiculed for my name. In other words, something supernatural happens when God's people suffer for his sake. Some of you have heard me say this at your churches, but I want to ask you this. Is it any coincidence right now that in communist North Korea, where it is illegal to follow Jesus, the church has exploded in number? In December, the magazine Christianity Christianity Today estimated that there were 300,000 Christians in the country of North Korea. These are people who are being imprisoned in work camps. There are accounts of extreme torture and execution. And the gospel is advancing rapidly. Is it any surprise right now in communist China, where pastors have been imprisoned and church buildings have been bulldozed, that there are an estimated 100 million Christians? Wait a minute, I thought you had to be capitalist to be Christian country. The Chinese church is growing so fast that it's predicted that if they continue at even a modest pace of growth, that there will be around 200 million Christians in the next 10 years. But church, let me ask you, do you know where the fastest growing church is in all the world? It's the country of Iran. Imagine a Muslim nation where leaders are hostile to the gospel, persecuting people who follow Jesus, and the kingdom of God is advancing faster than anywhere in the world. Some estimates put the the growth in Iran of the church at 20% every year. But believers are in constant danger for their lives. However, it is apparent that the glory of God and His Spirit is resting on his churches in those countries. Moving in profound ways throughout those countries. You see, the glory and the favor of God rests with those who are suffering for his name's sake. Now notice the next verses. Verse 21. For you were called to this. How about that for calling? Anybody underline that promise in your Bible? (laughs) These Christians are suffering and losing. And Peter says, hey, cheer up. You're called to this. (laughs) Why are they called to this? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. We're called to imitate Jesus, to suffer with a kind of dignity and honor and courage and love for our neighbors who are increasingly going to despise us. They will not understand our beliefs about the ways God created us to function. They're just not going to. They will not understand God's design for marriage and human sexuality and our care for human life at all stages. Our belief that salvation from human brokenness is only found in Jesus sounds narrow and bigoted to them. They will likely not accept many of our ethics, and I'm here to tell you the Bible says that's normal and to be expected. They're pagans. They're not saved. They're living as pagans. Their allegiance lies elsewhere and not with Jesus yet. And it does us no good to get angry and to listen to people who make us angry at them. 
that only bears bad fruit. And that kind of angry conduct attracts no one to God's kingdom. And it's dividing many of our own churches. We're called to something more beautiful, brothers and sisters. A holy way of being. A more humble way of living that's slow to anger. That's steadfast and true and willing to suffer with grace and dignity. The early church in the first 300 centuries, was a church that suffered tremendously. And they constantly talked about one virtue. Church leaders gave powerful sermons on this virtue. One of them referred to this virtue as the supreme virtue among believers. Like He said, this is when the church comes alive. Church fathers, Cyprian, Tertullian, and Origen all wrote powerfully about this virtue. A virtue hidden in verse 20 of our text this evening. A virtue, they say, makes us most like God. Verse 20, part B again. But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it. This brings favor with God. The hallmark of faithful believers who follow in the footsteps of Jesus and respond to outside pressure with courage and conviction and clarity and willingness to suffer. The hallmark of those people is patience. Patient endurance. These are people who believe so strongly in the God of their salvation that they're able to endure patiently as they wait for God to work out His plan. Because they understand God's plan doesn't rest on them. Their job is to be faithful as they wait for God to save them. As they wait for God to bring justice. Brothers and sisters, I can't predict the future. But we can read the Scriptures. We hear the stories of a persecuted church since the, the very beginning of the church. And today around the world, the church is persecuted. And we have the statistics of an increasingly pagan society around us. Tonight, I urge us back to the gospel. Back to the bold trust in the plan of God. Back to becoming a people of patience, willing to suffer as we love the broken world around us. A world that does not understand Jesus. And if we truly believe that it's Jesus who saves us and saves our pagan culture from sin and despair and evil, then we must have the patience to endure and allow the gospel to be revealed in our lives as we suffer for Christ's sake. Anxiety and impatience and mistrust and cowardice causes us to lash out, saying and doing things that are not of Jesus and they undermine our witness. He bore our sins. He waited patiently for us. He suffered for us. By His wounds, the Bible says, we're healed. We have the privilege, the Bible says, in the coming years, to have God use our wounds to help heal others as they see our love, even as we are marginalized or persecuted. Let that be us, 
a graceful, bold, patient people. Let that be our testimony. And let the gospel of Jesus be seen in the patient endurance of God's people. Amen. Lord, we come to you this evening. And we ask for your holy anointing on our churches. We ask for your forgiveness where we have defied your word. And we have lashed out in anger and mistrust of your grace and power and authority. And even the power of the gospel. Believing that other things will save our society. God forgive us. And tonight we cry out for ourselves and our churches. And we ask that you equip us and prepare us. For a season of suffering potentially. God we don't know what the future holds. But we ask for your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. All of God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please share so others can benefit from it as well. And check out our other podcast series from our website at rosedale.edu slash podcasts. God bless you and have a good day.